Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Five cities, church in the cities, uh, the seven that are mentioned here in the scripture. This city of Thyatira, or town if you will, really didn't amount to much. It was really no more than an army outpost. Similar we might consider to Bethlehem, from which Christ came, and everybody was asking, can any good, or Nazareth, can any good thing come out of, out of Nazareth? Could possibly the Christ child be born in Bethlehem, that insignificant town? Well, this was something very similar. Too small and too insignificant for people to be concerned about, but I think I could not pass over this with making this note. There is no town, no church, or no individual so insignificant and so little and so small that what God is concerned about him and aware of him. And we must assume that same responsibility, that same concern for the people of this community. There can't be anybody so little, so ungodly, so unappealing, but what we must love them with a complete heart of love. We must. And this is the way the Lord looked the little church here in this little town, and he wrote to them a very important letter, the longest of them all, because he loved them. Now the only thing we really know of any importance about this town, what it was it was the center of the dyeing industry, and it was from this town that Lydia that is referred to in the 16th chapter of Acts, from which she came. She was a seller of purple, a purple dye. And it's from this town that she came. This town had same problems with, with the unions and eating uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols as anybody else, and this becomes a very crucial point in this particular letter to the, the church here in Thyatira. Now, as has been true in the other letters that we had read thus far from Ephesus and uh, from Smyrna and also Pergamos, the Lord begins by identifying himself. To Ephesus, you remember, he identified himself as the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand. I, I always use my left, so I pull up the right. He holds them in his right hand. I don't know why he didn't use his left hand. I, you know, I think he'd been better off to use his left hand. But most people he made right-handed, so God must be right-handed. So he held them in his right hand. The pastor of the churches. Over uh, to uh, Smyrna, he identified himself as the first and the last, the one that was dead and is alive. To Pergamos, he identified himself as the one that had the sharp, two-edged sword. Now here to, to Thyatira, he identifies himself as the one that has eyes like a flame of fire and feet that are fine brass. Eyes like a flame of fire. That sounds threatening, does it not? It sounds as though he was saying, I can look all the way through you and I know you thoroughly. And that indeed is exactly right. Some people think that they can sin and 
get by because God is not going to spend time looking at this little insignificant person over here in the corner. He's more interested in something else. But the scripture certainly points out that the eyes of the Lord penetrate through the very soul and heart of every individual in the world. There is nobody that can escape his gaze. Have you tried to hide your sin? Yes, I'm sure you have. I have. I can remember lots of things that I've done that I tried to hide from people. Matter of fact, I've tried to hide it from God. The only trouble is, I can't hide it from God. For He sees with these piercing eyes through and through. When I was a teenager, my grandfather died. Before he died, on his deathbed, he called me into his, his room. He sat me down there in front of him and he talked to me. There's one thing he told me that has never escaped me. I don't remember what he said. Although I remember being quite uncomfortable under the gaze of his eyes as he talked to me very straight. But there's one thing he said to me. He said, the Lord has told me to tell you that his eyes are upon you. Now you talk about shaking in my boots. But I never forgot it. I don't know why the Lord told him to tell me that. But it certainly has bothered me on many occasions when I would like to have been wavered and probably have been wavered to discover that I am under the penetrating eye of the Lord. But not only am I under his penetrating eye, you are under his penetrating eye just as well. Do not think that you can escape the gaze of God. He knows the innermost secrets. Your entire life is as an open book. And he can read your thoughts before you think them. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. He is prepared to understand you thoroughly and completely. And he knows why you do what you do, even though you might lie to yourself or to other people or to him. He still knows what the truth is about your life and mine. So we cannot hide from God because he has these tremendously penetrating eyes that gaze into our heart. Know what we're about. We'll not spend time on the feet. They're described as like grass, which, which is a description throughout the scripture as an immovable power. Whenever you find God being described in some terms as brass, it is something that is very extremely firm and, and permanent. Now, in the 19th verse, the Lord says, I know your works and your love and your service and your faith and your patience. And then he comes back and says, and your works again. You notice that? But this time he says, your works, the last shall be more than the first. I've done a lot of searching to try to determine what that means, and I've come to this conclusion. First of all, I want you to notice there are six words that he uses. 
And it seems to be that when he comes back to works again at the, at the end of this statement, he is saying that you are really getting better at what you're doing. And this is what we ought to be. He is praising them, certainly to a degree, in that they are a working church. This is important, that we be a working church. And we ought to be getting better in our works and doing more in our works, but that's not the only word he uses. He uses the word love, that's the word charity in the King James, and service and faith and patience. They were all of these things. Before we are going to work, we're going to love. And I don't want to get into the next Sunday sermon too much or the Sunday school lesson, but I feel like I cannot overlook the word here. Jesus said to Peter after the crucifixion and they were sitting around the fire, he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responded, yes, Lord, I love you. And finally, Peter responded, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus gave him a commandment. He said two occasions, feed my uh, sheep, and on one occasion, feed my lambs. As the Lord looks into this church, can he praise us for our works, for our love, for our service, for our faith, for our patience, and again, are our works getting better all along? We cannot find ourselves fitting into that description of praise, then certainly we need to be uh, conscious of what's happening and perhaps make some changes. There is a warning here, I think, that we must be careful of. We can be so wrapped up in doing things that we forget to be something. This happens oftentimes in churches that people are so involved doing that they forget to be. This is one caution that I want to make about all the preparations that we're going to be doing for the revival. It is more important that God knows you for what you are than he knows you for what you do. You must be before you do. This is important. Some churches are nothing more than an entertainment center. We should not come to be entertained. We should come to be instructed. We should not come as members of a club. We should come as a congregation of God. I've been in some clubs. There aren't too many nightclubs in churches. We just don't believe in going out at night. But I've seen lots of Sunday morning clubs. We're the church of God. We're his congregation. We're here to, to be and then to do. All right. They had a problem, however, in this church. Verse 20. Now he has praised them so far, he, he has told them that he likes what they're doing, and he likes their love and service and faith and patience. 
He says, however, I have a few things against you. Now, what did he have against him? He said, because you suffer or permit, would be the uh, word that we would use today. You permit that woman, Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things unto idols. All right, first of all, who's Jezebel? Well, there is no way that we know who the individual was in this particular church. But there is no doubt, as we can read the scripture, that there was a woman in this case, there was a woman who was being disruptive and teaching false doctrine within the church. Now, probably the best translation of this would be to say that Jezebel of a woman. Now, what does that mean? You remember who Jezebel was. Back in the Old Testament, she was a daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of Sidon. And she married King Ahab of the Hebrew people, and when she came into uh, his household, she brought with her the, the god Baal, and a whole bunch of the, the priests of Baal, and set up worship. At least we know at least 400 of them, because Elijah had a confrontation on, on top of the mountain with 400 of the prophets of Baal. Now, she really was not interested in having Baal established and putting out the worship of Jehovah. She simply wanted Baal worship and Jehovah worship to be, to be intermingled so that people would, would actually worship both. This is the problem that we have in many churches today is the effort of some people to co-mingle the world and the church. to put together the things that are ungodly and unholy and unacceptable as a way of life and as a method of worship and put it in and water down the gospel. You look at church after church in this land today and you will discover people that can't stand strong preaching because they want it all watered down and nice and easy. They don't want to hear anything very strong. And I know just as sure as I'm standing here that there are people who won't come to hear me preach because they don't want to hear it that strong. Or well, one or two doses is enough. We have got to, with love, mind you, with love, but nevertheless, with the authority of the Scripture, speak of what God's Word has to say in the terms that it gives it without compromising. And here was somebody in that church who was trying to compromise the position of the church and teach people to intermingle with the affairs of the world. This is the whole basis of it. The fact that it was a woman, I suppose, is incidental. It seems like, uh, and women, you will forgive me, I hope. I'll hear about it if you don't. It seems like women sometimes have a way of, of getting off into the occult or into cults themselves and start influencing and leading people away from the basic teachings of the church. Like Mary Baker Eddy, if you please, and a few others that I could mention and we'll not get into that tonight. All right. This is who Jezebel is. Now, what was she teaching? She was teaching two things. 
Number one, she was teaching that they ought to eat meat offered to idols. We have discussed that uh, in previous sermons, how that, that was a problem because the, the unions would have a union meeting and have a big feast, and they would offer this meat to idols, and then they would pass it out and to the, the people eating the meal. And the Christian people did not believe that they ought to participate. And Jezebel was saying, now look, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat offered to idols. Go ahead and eat it. Now, Paul spent three chapters in 1 Corinthians dealing with this problem because it was a real problem to the early church. Should they participate in eating meat that had been offered to idols? Chapters 8 through 10, if any of you are making notes, you can look that up. Now, if I could summarize what Paul said in those chapters very easily, uh, quickly, he would say this. We know that there is no such thing as another God, and therefore, if somebody offered meat to another God, that's just a bunch of foolishness. We know there isn't any, and I can eat that meat, and it wouldn't bother me a bit. He said, however, if meat causes my brother to sin, I won't eat it. What is he saying? He is saying, I believe that we are responsible for the attitudes and the feelings and the heart and the concern and the life of other people. It might very well be that I could do something that would not be harmful as far as my life is concerned, but might put a stumbling block in your way. I'm responsible for you. You're responsible for me. And for each other. Now this is not easy to take because people do not want to assume responsibility for the life of somebody else. You remember that Cain killed his brother Abel. Buried him. God came looking for Abel and couldn't find him. And he finally said to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain, in essence, said, How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Let me paraphrase it. Yes, you're responsible for your brother. You cannot escape responsibility for each other. You're responsible For the person sitting beside you, for the person sitting behind you, for the person that is not here tonight, and his relationship to Jesus Christ, and if your life puts a stumbling block in his way and causes him to sin or falter or fail, you must assume the responsibility. And this is the thing that Jezebel and her life was doing, and that was teaching and advocating that you could do as you pleased without it having any bearing upon anybody else. And folks, it won't wash in God's Word. When a church gets to the place that it will assume responsibility for all of its people, to love them with the same kind of love and walk before them with the kind of a walk 
that will glorify Jesus Christ, then we won't be stumbling blocks. But when we are backbiting and bitter and hateful and sinful in the way we live, we establish stumbling blocks over which somebody's going to fall. teaching is that they ought to and were perfectly permissible to commit fornication. This is nothing more than pure immorality. Immorality is the widespread sin both inside and outside the church there is in the world. Because there is only one desire, one urge, one power stronger in our physical body than, than our morals, and that is our own life preservation. That's the only thing that is more powerful uh, in, the, in the physical body than, than sex itself, and that is the, the uh, determination to preserve one's own life. But it has gotten so much out of control that both inside and outside the church, the moral decay of our church and our society has led us down the road to believing that it's all right to commit these sins. We cannot begin to assume that immorality is committed only by the sinner, by the lost. It's being committed by our people inside our churches as well. And she was teaching these people to be immoral. We have today in our society one of the greatest scourges that has ever hit the human race, and that is the problem of AIDS. I always have to stop thinking what AIDS means. Acquired Immune Disease Syndrome, which means the body has a breakdown in its capabilities of being, uh, of putting out an immunity against diseases. It, uh, and this thing called AIDS destroys one, the body's incapability, uh, capability of defending itself. And so they finally will wither and die from some disease or other. You don't die from AIDS, you die from something else because your body cannot uh, withstand this, the onslaught of the disease. And we're spending millions of dollars in researching how to overcome the problem of AIDS. I can tell you that it does not cost a single dollar to overcome this problem. All we have to do is be moral. Yet this immorality, as well as many others, is treated by our society as something honorable. And people who die of AIDS, like some of the uh, movie stars that you can certainly well name, Rock Hudson being one of them and others, have been given places of respectability. And even in our churches, there is an effort to make homosexuality an accepted way of life. 
and yet it is preached again and taught, taught against throughout the scripture, and as a result of the immorality of today's society, we could be wiped out a great portion of society by this one disease before there's ever a cure found for it. And everybody's rushing around trying to find a cure when the church has the answer. Now we can probably sit here or stand here and be a little bit smug in that we can say, well, that certainly doesn't affect us because I've never done any of that. Well, first of all, before we get too smug, let us realize that uh, the Lord has given us the fact that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if you've ever had any more thoughts, you're just as guilty as the guy who has committed it in God's eyes. Number one, so we're all guilty of doing it, at least in our mind. But let's go beyond that. There is such a thing as spiritual fornication, spiritual immorality. Has you ever heard that word? What is fornication except the violation of one's vows to, to, to the mate? What is spiritual fornication except violation of our vows to God? Now we must lose our smugness and our good attitude and good feelings because we will all have to admit that we have not remained true to God. I've got a sermon and I haven't, I've been afraid, to, I've never pushed it. I've got my notes. I, I prepared it a long time ago. It's called the Second Marriage. And the thrust of that sermon is you're married to the devil and you're going to have to get a divorce because, before you can become the bride of Christ. Someday I will get nervous enough to preach it. I'll get it out and look at her once in a while. I just put it back. I just can't get up enough nerve. Well, I start that sermon off by asking how many of you are divorced? most would not be from the partner. Then I tell you if you're not divorced, you're not going to heaven. Because you've got to get married again. And I'd follow that line of thinking. It's in danger, so I haven't done it. This church was being taught not only physical immorality, but spiritual immorality, in that they were violating their vows to God as much as they had violated their vows to their marriage partner. And we know the scripture teaches very plainly that we uh, cannot serve God and the world. All right, go on to verse 21. He said, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. God gives people an opportunity to repent. But if they will not, and there are people who will not repent of their sin and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, now, then, then there's going to be some consequences to pay. You will notice that he says if they will not, that they're going to be a part of the Great Tribulation. Remember I said that the rapture takes place at the, at the end of the letters to the uh, seven churches. 
the people of that day who will not repent of their sin will be a part of the great tribulation. The Christian will be taken out. Now, go on to verse 23. Down to the phrase where he said, I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give them to every one of you according to your works. He searches the reins and hearts. You'll probably know this, but it's always interesting to me to, to comment on it. The reins are the kidneys. If you go back to the old uh, Raymond's Almanac, you'll find that on it in the signs. The reins are the kidneys. For you young girls, let me tell you this. If uh, that young fellow that you fall in love with one of these days comes up to you, and he wants to tell you that he loves you, he's probably going to say, I love you with all my heart. Had you lived back in this day, he would have said, I love you with all my kidneys. Because that was the seat of the emotions. It, with the heart was the seat of thought. We have changed it around. The brain now is the seat of our thought, and, and our heart is the seat of our emotions. But every emotion he searches, you see, he will search the, the seat of emotions. He will search the seat of thought. And he will know what is there. And he will then, in accordance with what he finds out in his search, give to every person according to the work that he has done. As a Christian. He concludes, and we'll have to go all the way down to verse 29 and skip the verses in between. He concludes by this, and to, I think to each of the churches he says the same thing. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now remember, he's talking to the church. He's asking the church to hear. We as the Out of Grants Baptist Church need to hear what God is saying to us as a church as well as, as individuals. How do we fit into this letter? Are we trying to compromise our position on the doctrines of the Scripture by allowing infiltration from those things that that are outside, are we being uh, idolaters in that we are not giving our heart and life completely to the Lord? We are immoral in our relationship to God because we have violated the vows that we made to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we said to Him, I accept you on faith, I believe in you as my Lord and Savior, and I accept you as my Lord, my Master, my Redeemer, and I live for you. I will live for you. Or have we violated those vows? We will have revival. I've said this time and time again, but let me say it again this evening. We will have revival in direct proportion to our personal relationship to our own Savior. He has nothing here to hear. Let him hear. 
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.